Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I get to bring you another hero that you've probably never heard of, Dr. Harry Reese. He's out of the University of Rochester. He's a professor of psychology and Dean's professor in art sciences and engineering. Let me tell you a little bit about him. So his research interests involve social interaction and close relationships. So you get why he's on the podcast, because we're going to learn a lot here. He studies the factors that influence the quantity and closeness of our social interaction and the consequences of different patterns of socializing for our own health and psychological well-being. In his research, subjects keep really detailed records on their own ongoing social interaction, and he tabulates them by computer related to other various factors, such as their sex role, health, and emotional well-being. He really is an expert on loneliness, and we talk a bit about loneliness. He gives me some great couples therapy advice. I'm a couples therapist. He's really interested in intimacy, attachment, and emotion regulation, which are my jam. So, of course, I was like taking notes madly during this entire conversation. I think you will be too. So, please meet Harry Reese from the University of Rochester in New York. Dr. Harry Reese, I told you before we started talking live here that I'm so excited to get to spend some time with you. You are somebody who's conducted research that I think is at the heart of Sidewalk Talk's mission. So tell us a little bit about you and a little bit of personal background on why you started researching intimacy and loneliness. Take us there. Okay, well, I, I grew up in New York City. Um, I was an only child, and the whole time I was in school, I was always profoundly interested in people and how people connected. I, I, I've gone back and looked at some of uh, you know the materials that my mother saved from my childhood, and you can see that like I used to keep charts about who was talking to whom and who was friends with whom and, and how people were connecting with each other. And that was just, you know, as a, as, as a, even as a preteen, I was doing that kind of thing. So I think that I just had an intrinsic interest in understanding and, and, and observing how people connected. Um, but I didn't go to college for that. Um, I went to college for a, uh, I, I won't even tell you what I was majoring in, but it was profoundly uninteresting. Um, but there was this thing called the Vietnam War going on at the mm. time. And the way you could avoid being drafted um, was to be a teacher in a high-need uh, subject matter. And so I decided to pursue that. Um, and the way you got teacher training at City College of New York, which is where I went, was to actually take psychology courses. 
And I discovered the psychology courses were really interesting to me. Um, and then as it happened, the, uh, the year I graduated colleges, they had this thing called the draft lottery, um, where if you, you know, they would draw, um, birthdays to see which birthdays would get drafted and which birthdays were lucky and would not. And I was one of the lucky ones. So all of a sudden I didn't have to teach this thing I didn't want to teach. Um, and I said, you know, I'm enjoying all these psychology things. And so I said, okay, let's go to graduate school. And I went to graduate school and it all sort of flowed naturally out of that. Um, at the time, there was actually very little study of topics like loneliness and connection and intimacy. It, it, was, a, it was a taboo topic um, in psychology. And so there was some resistance to it. And it really wasn't until I was established in the field for about 10 years or so that I got to really begin exploring that topic. So, you know, I, I would say that I, I'm one of these people who didn't choose his research topic. The research topic chose me. In some ways, I can imagine that makes it a little more magical at times, yeah? Uh, it, it certainly does. Um, and. It, it makes me wish I could go back and talk to that pre-adolescent self of mine and, and give him a few tips. Mm. Well, you know, I have to ask now, what would you, knowing what you know about connection, loneliness and intimacy, what would you tell that pre-adolescent self? I'm so curious. Oh, oh the, the, the absolutely first things I would tell him is don't worry so much. Other people are just as, you know, concerned about how they're doing as you are. Um, you know, you want to talk to somebody, just talk to them. Don't be afraid. That was that was in the days when you um, made dates with people by calling them on the telephone. Um, that, that strange. <laughs> the, mo the most nerve-wracking way. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was horrible. You know, it would take me weeks to be able to make the telephone call. And now I feel like saying, hey, just pick up the phone and call. That's sweet. So. I love I love all the lessons we can go back and imagine saying to our younger selves. And I think those younger selves in some ways are still alive in there in a lot of yeah. ways. Well, there's that, you know, there was the, that movie about that. Um, Peggy Sue got married where, mm -hmm. um, you know, he goes back to his high school self. Um, yeah. But he still has everything he knows as an adult. It would be a fascinating exercise. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm curious, what have been the things in your study around human connection that have most surprised you that you didn't expect when you, you set out to do the research or when you had a hypothesis in mind? Um, well, that's a, that's a tough question. Well, uh, should, we go, should we go easier first? It was no, the one that no. like stuck out after reading all your research. Yeah. Well, um, I would say that the most surprising thing um, has been um, how difficult the important elements are for many people. You know, so so we think we've got a really good sense of what the essential elements of intimacy and, and avoiding loneliness are. Um, but the, the hard part is that you can't just say to people, well, here's what you need to do. So just go out and do it. And, you know, then everything will be hunky-dory. Um, and I think what we've discovered is that for many, many people, it's darn difficult to do these things. And you can't just say, okay, I'm going to 
listen better. I'm going to be more open. I'm going to feel more confident when I'm talking to people. You can't just make those things happen spontaneously. They're, they're, they're deeply wired in, into our, uh, our histories as individuals. And to make changes in those kinds of things is a really, really challenging um, enterprise for people. You know, you're touching a nerve for me because, you know, active listening. So I'm a couples therapist. I didn't say this to you beforehand. So 16 years I've spent with couples and then my parents were married six times. So really I've been doing it since I was four. And active listening feels so techniquey and it's the number one complaint I get from couples. And, and I realize that, gosh, there's their own attachment style that has to be worked with before they can even employ good listening skills. There's their own ability to regulate their nervous system before they can employ <laughs> good listening skills. There's their own capacity to have self-compassion for themselves and to label and feel their feelings and have confidence about what they're feeling. But, but that's my high level. You've got like 10 other things that I have blind spots to that I'm not even seeing. So tell yeah, me but, more. But you just pointed out what, what is probably the biggest problem, and that is that it's what you described it works but it's also techniquey that when you do it techniquey it doesn't work that's right you know um you know the the prototypical couples situation is you know that you that you teach them a skill in therapy and the next time there's some big fight you know one of them says exactly what the therapist said you know tell me how you feel about that and then the other person's response is don't go pulling those techniques on me Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it has to be spontaneous. It has to be natural. Yeah. And, and teaching that is the hardest part. Yeah, I often tell couples it's, it's, it's more of a change of heart than a change of behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the, you, we've had years of, of, of uh, behavior change therapy for couples, and, and we know pretty definitively that it doesn't work because it's, it's, it's the feelings underneath the behavior that matter and not the behavior itself. Mm. Okay. I have to ask this then what couples theory are you most interested in or that sort of gets you excited based on the research you've done? Is it EFT then? EFT. Yeah. I was just about to say EFT with a heavy dose of attachment theory. Um, and it is kind of, although, you know, the, the, the new version of, of acceptance therapy, um, yep. kind, kind of act to me. Yeah. The act program and all that, that, that idea really appeals to me. Um, I, I think it hasn't been around quite long enough for us to really feel confident about it. And I'm, in particular, I'm not sure it works for couples that, um, let's say have have deep underlying disturbances um, yeah but for you know ordinary middle class couples who are not dealing with severe pathologies it, it's a really intriguing idea um yeah. and it's a, i really kind of like the model of, of accepting the other person because that's very close to our ideas about how important validation is in close mm. relationships yeah for sure so I'm going to dovetail because I could geek out with you on couples therapy forever. And then everyone would be really annoyed and go, you didn't ask Harry this and this and this and this. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. 
So can you take me back? You know, loneliness is getting a lot of airtime right now in the media. And I feel like there's not a concrete sort of universal definition that maybe touches cross-culturally that really speaks to the human condition. So I get that you're going to take your stab at it, but you know, you've done a lot more research. It's, it's not something that's just a pop psychology topic for you. How, what is loneliness for us human animals? What is this thing? Well, we, we've got a definition, but it's not an entirely satisfying definition. So I understand where you're coming from. You know, the, the definition that, that we use is that is people feel lonely when the, the social relations they have fall short of their expectations. When, when they're seeking a certain level of connection and they feel like they don't have it. Um, what's important about that definition is it makes loneliness different than isolation because isolation doesn't have to produce loneliness. Um, what's dissatisfying about that definition, of course, is it doesn't say anything about where loneliness comes from. You know, it, it's more descriptive than it is proscriptive. Where do you think, where does it come from in your mind? Well, in, in, um, in the model I use, it comes primarily from three different kinds of places. The first and, and the simplest one is that people, that people's social connections just aren't full of meaningful interactions. They're not full of intimacy in our, in our terminology. They may be with other people, but the withing, the with other people that they're doing is not satisfying. It's superficial. It, it doesn't allow them to feel like their inner selves are being reached. And it doesn't give them a sense that they really belong to a group of people. So that's one thing. Yeah. The second thing is more of a, what, what we call social cognition. It's the way people think about their social connections. Um, and basically what lonely people do is that they think of their social connections as a sign of their anatomy. That is, when they're trying to make sense of what's going wrong, they they blame themselves. They say, you know, I, I don't know how to be around people. My, my skills are inadequate. Um, I don't know how to talk to people. But but curiously, at the same time, they're very critical. So they're, they're, and we, we've done several studies where we've shown that lonely um, people are more critical of others, and they're particularly critical of people they're close to, which, um, of course, you can see how that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy, because when you're critical right. of other people, then they don't want to connect with you. And the third, the yes. third, yeah, the third category we look at is more characterological kinds of problems. The, the, the there are a bunch of uh, correlates that go along with loneliness that are very well established. Um, insecure attachment, as you undoubtedly know, uh, low self-esteem, um, neuroticism, um, just a, a feeling of the self not being um, desirable, that, that other people don't want to connect with you that sort of, you know, puts you behind the eight ball even before you begin to interact with other people. Mm. So it's that set of three things. And um, I, I haven't personally haven't done any um, intervention work trying to deal with this, but what I know of the intervention literature 
suggest that you really have to work on all three at once. Uh, that, you know, when I was first starting in this area of research in the 1980s, it was really popular to teach lonely people social skills. Yeah. So to teach them how to initiate, teach them how to appropriately self-disclose, teach them how to be active listeners. And that approach never did much. Um, and, and, I, and I really do believe it's because it didn't address the sort of underlying cognitions that people had about their loneliness. And it didn't address the, the character problems um, that, that lonely people tend to have. Yeah, so well said. And it, it definitely mirrors some of my experience on the sidewalk, too. As we listen on sidewalks, there were so many different genesis points for us. And loneliness wasn't the first implication. Some of it was also an uptick in violence in our culture and trying to, me personally, trying to make sense of that. But everything I've seen has really proven what you're, what you're espousing, which is listening alone isn't enough, right? right? That there are folks that will come and sit down or participate. And if they have these characterological components to themselves where their self-esteem is low, or they feel themselves not to be desirable, or they're really negative, um, you can see how that sense of listening as part of a community doesn't scratch their itch of loneliness. They're, they're still feeling it because there are these other ingredients. I really, I'm really with you on that. It makes sense to me. And there's a part of me that doesn't, that still wants to win and <laughs> wants to figure out a way to solve it. Right. But I guess oh, that's what sure. I'm doing as I mean, a therapist. Right. And I would love it if it was as simple as skills. You know, there's one group of people for whom skills training does seem to be helpful. Mm. Um, and that's uh, high-functioning autism. Um, yes. I'm, I'm always struck. I teach a class on relationships uh, here at the University of Rochester. And there are always a, a couple of high-functioning autism kids in the class. And they're in the class because they want to learn the rules. Mm. Um, but interestingly enough, for them, they tend to be fairly well put together. And they don't have the character problems. And if, if, if you teach them the rules, they go out and they use them. Yeah. Um, and it really does seem, I have, my brother-in-law is actually in that category. And, you know, when you explain things to him that, you know, he should wait three seconds before he, uh, when someone else stops talking, before he starts talking, and he applies that rule, and it's helpful for him. Yeah. Well... So can we think together a little bit then about this this quality of loneliness? It, do you believe that it's getting worse or are we simply tracking it more now? Yeah. And that's that, why that, we're talking about it. Right. That's such an interesting question. All of the data I've seen, including data that I've collected in my class over the 35 years that I've been teaching this class, say that um, there was a sudden spike in loneliness about six to eight years ago, let's say, in, 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 the, in the late adolescent, early adult generation. I'm normally suspicious of data like that because interpreting time trends and data is really, really complicated. But the suddenness of the spike was really striking. And not coincidentally, the spike happened at the same time that all of a sudden people became married to their cell phones. Mm -hmm. um, and a colleague, Gene Twenge, 
um, in California has data showing that the spike in loneliness happened precisely among the people who use their cell phones the most. Yeah. Um, so I have to believe that the, the spike is uh, not a coincidence, that, um, that in fact loneliness is um, increasing. It, I don't exactly want to blame cell phones for that because I think that it's a lot more complicated, but maybe the right way to think about it is to think that what our cell phones do is they make it too easy to fulfill the itch in an unsatisfying way. Yeah. I like to think about cell phones as fast food. Yep. You know, if you're hungry and you go get yourself um, a Big Mac, you won't be hungry, at least for a little while. But what you're eating is not nutritious. Um, so it's not really meeting your need to eat nutritious food, but it is solving that immediate hunger. And I think that the kinds of connections we often make um, through our devices may have the same kind of functions. They, 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 if you're feeling like you need a connection or you want to talk to this family member or this friend, it fulfills that itch for, for a moment, but it doesn't produce the kind of satisfying social interaction that makes people feel deeply valued and connected with other people over time. So. Well, and, you know, and then there's this trickle out effect, which is the more that we start living off of fast food, right, then there's a longer term impact. I think about, for example, as our lives become busier, we also don't make time for meaningful connection. Or as many of us are perhaps having an idea of what marriage is and, and don't recognize that it also involves having hard conversations. It's not just romance, right? There's this quality in which we're increasingly disincentivized to invest in intimacy, period. And it seems to sort of snowball on itself. Like once you start eating this food, you just keep eating this food. Um, and I keep wondering about all the other systemic inputs that produce that, right? As the economy gets worse and families have less time to spend together, um, you know, all of the different inputs, right? Um, oh, absolutely. absolutely. You know, one of the fascinating things about uh, marriage in, in the modern world is, you know, most people will tell you that the most important thing in their life is their family. Not, you know, maybe not everybody, but if you, Certainly, if you do studies where you ask people what's important to you, family and friends invariably comes out at the top for 75 to 80 percent of people. Isn't it interesting that we tend to spend our time on the most important thing in life, usually around 1130 at night when we're exhausted and have very little mental resources left? Yeah. Um, you know, there's something backwards about that. And I have to say that with all the couples that I'm seeing right now, while some of them are strained, others are actually doing better because of that fact. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I like, oh, my God, the reduction in running kids from here to there has already made a massive improvement. in our. you know, for the couples that didn't have really anything characterological going on between the two of them, they're doing really well right now under under quarantine. 
And it's been fascinating because it proves out really what you're what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're gonna, I think we, I think we're gonna see a spike in divorces when uh, quarantine sure. is over. But I also think that there's gonna that there's a spike in couples who kind of rediscovered each other. Um, yeah, and, and rediscovered the joy of, of cooking together and having a meal together. And you know, one of the things that I think is important about our work on intimacy, by the way, I don't want people to get the idea that we're saying that the way to avoid loneliness is to have deep, meaningful conversations all the time. That's mm -hmm. not what we're saying. Yay, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> Say more. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes you need to have a deep, meaningful conversation, sure. of course. But a lot of what produces meaningful connection is simply sitting around and laughing with people and talking about politics and talking about how your day went and just, you know, just being there, just, just being in the presence of another person in a warm, thoughtful way, uh, in, a, in a mindful way, if, if you want to use that word, going to the movies together, uh, playing a game together, just being together in a way that people feel connected to each other is every bit as important as having those deep, meaningful conversations. Gosh, I couldn't agree more. And I hope that what we do when we're out there sitting on the sidewalk is we wet people's whistle because I yeah. swear to God, I feel like people forget what you're saying. Yeah. Well, a, yeah. they forget that it's an intention. It's not a, it's not a technique. It's an intention. I'm going to show up and just be with you here. I'm not going to do anything to you. I'm not going to fix you. I'm not going to give you advice. I'm just going to be here in this particular way where I'm open to kind of pulling at the little thread and seeing where the how the ball of yarn unravels, you know? Yeah. And I we just don't prioritize that at all because there's nothing about it that's productive. Well, well, <laughs> you know? It's worse than that, Tracy. Um, <laughs> think about what happens when couples get married and have a child. Now, here they've been dating, so they've been doing things together, right? They go out mm -hmm. together. They do things together. And then they have a child. And they don't want to pay for babysitters all the time. So you go out on Monday night and I'll go out on Tuesday night. So all of a sudden, all those fun things that they used to do together, you can go skiing this weekend and then I'll go skiing next weekend. And all those things that they used to do together that were a, a, a way that they produced a sense of togetherness, all of a sudden now they're doing what we call parallel play. And, you know, then 10 years later, all of a sudden they wonder what happened. Um, yeah. You know, so one of the really simplest um, recommendations you can make to um, couples who are struggling is the concept of date night. I uh, do do date night, but you know what I do? I tell them to go on a double date initially because yeah, sometimes you get a couple that goes that goes out together that hasn't been talking to each other for 10 years and they come back freaked out they're like we didn't have anything to talk about so i'm like go on a double date because <laughs> yeah, like your partner that. will start will start talking to somebody else and they'll start talking about things that you guys would have never talked about together moreover you're going to get to see a side of them that's novel and you're going to want to go home and have sex with them <laughs> well and in fact you use the word novel and uh, another variant of that which my uh 
dear friend and colleague Art Aaron uh, has been promoting for a long time, is to do novel uh, and exciting activities together. So mm. rather than just doing date night, take a course together. Mm. Uh, take a photography Love course. That. Take a cooking course. Do something, focus on an activity, something that both people want to do that will require them learning a new skill, working together at something or other. Um, and that can sometimes um, overcome the awkwardness that you're mentioning um, just by having them have some activity they can focus on. I love that. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh my God, I want to talk to you forever, just forever and ever and keep going. But I know we just have just a little bit more time left, but I, I'm hoping that you'll come back. And I'm sure. hoping that that we'll be able to sort of geek out on on ways that we could have an impact on this. So I wanted to ask you one more thing around listening, because I agree with you, even though we're a listening project, how can, though, there be a positive outcome where listening does begin to move the needle, even sort of tangentially around this loneliness piece and what 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 would need to be involved beyond the usual reflections and blah 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 that you get in active listening for it to really make a shift for someone well i i i think that what has to happen is that people have to do it and they have to do it sincerely and they have to do it for an extended period of time so a lot a lot of people when they do active listening you know, they're, they're sitting there counting the seconds before it's their turn to talk. Um, and, and that's not active listening. But when you really pay attention to what another person is saying, then you can get insight into them. And interestingly enough, that makes it easier for people to feel like the other person is actually paying attention to them. So... You know, sometimes I'm reminded of the old uh, Groucho Marx um, joke about um, the important thing is to be sincere. And if you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> um, oh, God. But, you know, it, it, with active listening, if you're faking it, it's not going to work. But if you, can, right. if you can really focus on the paying attention to what the other person's saying and then responding to it, Mm -hmm. um, when that goes back and forth for a while, I, I think eventually it does uh, feed back into some of these other issues that we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's not, you know, do it for five minutes and all of a sudden it's going to work yeah. fine. But to really pay attention to it. I think one thing that will happen is if you do it sincerely, you'll see the reaction in the other person. And, and you'll have this thought, you know, hey, they're actually, they're, they're actually pleased with how I'm responding. You know, they're yeah. listening. They're, they feel like I have some useful in, in, input. And so I think there, I think, I think it just take it takes time and practice. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think so often we technique it in a way that it doesn't feel sincere. And then people aren't motivated to practice because I always think we always have to find, as, as Terry Reel says, the leverage or the source of motivation so that the person is interested in continuing to go rather than it, you know, to keep going with the practice rather than it just being about some, something someone told you to do. Right. And I'm just, I always tell couples, I said, just do it until it feels good. 
Right. If but... it doesn't, if it feels technique, you haven't got it yet. It's got to feel damn good when you do it. Right. <laughs> and well, when it starts to feel really good, then you're on to something. Right. But of course, sometimes it starts to feel worse and worse. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's when, that's when couples are really in trouble. That's when they come pay the big bucks and come see me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not confident about a lot of things, but I'm very confident about my, my couples therapy skills, So, which feels nice to actually own in a conversation. I'm, I can be kind of wimpy about a lot of things, so it's nice to not be wimpy. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. As you know, couples therapy is one of the hardest therapies to do. You know, I guess because I've been doing it since I was four, it, it's not so hard for me. Um, I think that piece of work I always have to do is to make sure I keep my four-year-old out of the room, but that's why I have my own my own buns on a therapist's couch, too, so that I'm not doing that to my couples. <laughs> right? Makes sense. Yeah. So here's how we end. We have a tradition for how we end our conversation, and it's nice because you get to take the floor. So if you were to speak directly to these 7,800 listeners now that listen across 15 countries, either you get to choose either a piece of advice or you want to send them a wish. This is your chance to speak directly to them. What would you want to say? Oh, that, that's one I need a half hour to think through. Oh. <laughs> Um, I would say that I would offer a wish for everybody that they could find a group of people with whom they feel really connected to, that they feel that these are their people. Uh, people who you feel are on the same wavelength with you, people who you feel see the world in the same way that you do and people that you can actually spend time with um, so that you feel immersed in a network um, that you could even call a family, um, but it's a chosen family, um, and that you could grow old with those people. That would be my wish. I love that wish. I love that wish. Dr. Rice, Dr. Reese, I always want to say Rice, and, and, well, and, and we, we talk about you a lot, Guy and I, he goes, it's, it's Reese, Tracy, it's Reese, and I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> well, you're not, you're not wrong. Um, there is an old family story about that, so um, do you want, if you have time, I'll tell you the family story. Tell me the story. Oh, it's a wonderful you, it's, story. It's, tell the, me the story. It's, uh, my family's German, and the proper German's pronunciation is Rice. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently... Some generations back, there were two brothers who did not get along well. Oh, and, there, and one of them, in order to distance himself from his other brother so that people wouldn't think they were the same family, changed the pronunciation of the name to Reese. And I'm kidding me. And I'm descended from that person. Wow. And my family being a family that has always been good at holding grudges is story makes perfectly good sense to me. So it, it became Reese, even though the proper German pronunciation is in fact Rice. That's why I keep, because you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm in Germany right now while we're oh. having our discussion. I'm living in Heidelberg, so I'm married uh, you're to kidding. a German. I, no. Heidelberg is where those two brothers live. Oh my gosh. Should I go drive over to their house? <laughs> um, the, the, house is still, the house is still there. I've been to the house. 
No you, kidding. You know where the, um, the, it's not the city hall. There's a city information bureau right by the Neckar River. Yeah, um, totally. There's one of the houses right next to that. Oh, wow. That's I, I don't. Much. I would tell you the address, but I don't know it. Well, we'll have to do that offline. That's great. Oh, Heidelberg. I love I, Heidelberg. Is such a beautiful little town. It's really nice. It's yeah. nice. Oh, I'm so appreciate having this conversation. So thank you so much, Dr. Reese. And for everyone that's listening, we will put more information about different articles and resources from Dr. Reese's research in the show notes. And we hope that we'll have him back sometime in some capacity. We're not sure yet, but um, I hope this is just the beginning. And thank you for the work that you do in the world, genuinely. Thank you, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye now. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of